Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode. When you're listening to this, it won't be Thanksgiving, but it's Thanksgiving morning for me. So I just wanted to tell you how thankful I am for you spending the time to listen to the show. I really, really appreciate this. Because of you, I get to talk to amazing entrepreneurs from all over the world. And today's guest is really a great one, and I'm really excited for you to hear her story specifically because she talks about the importance of storytelling and how to make it larger than just your own business needs. Tracy is the CEO of Maternal Medical, which is a pelvic health product and creating accessibility for women's health in the U.S. Now, we're going to go into sort of the importance of this because it's just such an overlooked space and women are really underserved here. But what makes this really interesting is she talks about why developing a story that touches a broader need and building into the need of your audience to then bring your business story into it can help guide the growth of your company. Now, she'll also talk about some really important things like really taking care of yourself as you go through these efforts because I think I've mentioned more than a few times, I haven't really focused on self-care in some of my past situations with companies because I was so focused on the growth of the company. And Tracy really will walk through how she prioritizes this so that allows her then to focus on her team, which then allows her and her team to focus on the larger audience. Really interesting how she kind of layers them on top of each other. I think also what's interesting is given Tracy's incredible background she has an engineering background. She's had leadership roles, startups, mid-sized companies, Fortune 100 companies before coming in as the CEO of Maternal Medical, is that she brings this open mind to the different transition phases of the companies she's working with, and specifically Maternal Medical as they're growing so quickly using that expertise. But she keeps this open mind to the situation. She aligns with the story. They're working for creating this opportunity to help women and then building the corporate needs around it. So as you look this transition into sort of the eight-figure realm, specifically where they're about, look at how she talks about that need to keep that open mind, that transition, and deepen the story to the audience, not about the company, but about the need of their clients women. And this is just really kind of powerful because it's something that takes it out of our own sort of self-serving needs, which sometimes we get caught up as much as we want our brands and our story to be larger and broader. It just feels self-serving. So the way that Tracy positions us and the way she guides her team really helps move this forward. And it's something that I think we should spend more time at looking at what value we're bringing to the audience. 
maybe not as amazing as Tracy and her team is doing with maternal medical, but we do bring value from our efforts as entrepreneurs to our clients. How to kind of focus on that and really prioritize developing that story, I think is well worth it. So look, happy Thanksgiving, even though it isn't Thanksgiving for you. And please join me in my conversation with Tracy McMeal, the CEO of Maternal Medical. Hello, Tracy. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. You know, I was just telling the audience, I love that you have this incredible background in medical products and kind of having worked in various aspects of this. And now you have this really amazing company. You've just raised new funds. Yeah. Returna seems to be doing such an interesting thing. I'm curious, you know, first I want to dive into like where you see yourself as an entrepreneur, but I would love to dive in also where this focus came out of. Where do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? You know, what do you think an entrepreneur is? I've gotten so broad. The more people I talk to on the show, for me, the more I think it's someone who deliberately creates value out of the means of sort of this economic generation. But I've had entrepreneurs, I've had social entrepreneurs purely doing not-for-profit work. It's almost like they're just looking at this business startup kind of thing as a problem-solving tool to then create value in what they're interested in. I'm kind of thinking it's like, okay, you're just doing something that is really cool because you think it should be done and you're just using these levers to kind of get there. I think that's brilliant. I agree. It is about value creation. I also think there's this incredible element of adventure and exploration for me. You know, I think a lot of people are increasingly feeling the need to really plug into something that matters, right? Like I can, can make money anyway, right? You want to leave this place better than you found it. I mean, I want to anyway. And so I've been working in healthcare for most of my career. And I think that that's part of how I connect into leaving the world better than I found it. Sometimes it's abstract. I've had some roles where I'm a little further away from the patient, a little further away from the, 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 the improvement that we're giving people. In this company, I am right at the patient front. It's so fun. And we're working on something that no one else is working on. I've never had the opportunity to really be that level of a groundbreaker. It's a really exciting time. You know, I find it very fascinating because the direct-to-consumer model has been sort of evolving from like the bonobos, all the kind of evolutions from the diaper.com, actually kind of semi-related I didn't think it, but like this whole thing to see medical products start going in that direction. We've had guests talk about sort of the rise of sex tech, women health, and sort of the awareness used to be my first marketing company. I remember we had one of the original toys sites come to us. Like they couldn't even have a store where they were. And now the company that the private equity ended up buying them. They're now a major category in Amazon and they have Walmart. Things are changing. Things are definitely changing. We're, we're positioned. So Materna Medical is, it's a medical device company. So where I don't think we would position ourselves in sex tech per, per se. I think we sometimes get M tech company. So this is my first chance to work in women's health. I, in my previous work, it was more in orthopedics or endoscopy, a more polite conversation. <laughs> so, you know, we talk about vaginal dilators all day now. 
they're addressing really common issues that really haven't gotten a lot of investment. So one of the things that's exciting for me about Materna, and then I think one of the reasons we do as well as we do is other people are excited about it too. But for many years, women's health was not considered to be a real market. So interesting, right? It's half the population, right? And sometimes people think about women's health as OBGYN. And as it happens, Materna is an obstetrics and gynecology company. But, you know, the vision, we can talk about this later, but the, the vision of women's health is really not just that. It's the health of women, right? The fact that heart attacks manifest differently in women than they do in men, right? Women tend to get nauseous and get the shooting pains down the left arm. There's some really interesting differences in the way health happens in women versus men, and it hasn't really been invested in historically. And I think it's we're just seeing the beginning of it. We're no longer on the bleeding edge. I would say Materna's on the leading edge. Having kind of never been aware until as I've grown older and been in my street, just the, um, the lack of research you know, in simple things like we're talking about heart care, almost every trial on the drugs were predominantly male. No, it was just like, oh, <laughs> you know, I, my mother had some things and she had some issues when she was having cancer. And it turned out the drug that she was on had predominantly been tested with men. You know, she did get a different doctor who did find something that did work. And this is prevalent across many things, but okay. This is a leading edge and you do have this amazing background. How do you see where you are as an entrepreneur based upon what you've been able to do and where you're going? Well, so I'm a recovering engineer. My background's in chemical engineering and I don't do much in the way of engineering anymore. I went to the the business side pretty early in my career. I have this crackpot theory that technical people who can talk get put in talking roles pretty quickly. So I do think that for me, that's been a pattern in my, my whole career is working on technical products, but telling it in a story that people can understand and relate to. And so it's easy to, and, and this isn't just a medical device issue. I mean, I think it's easy to fall in love with your product and think that it's your product that matters. And it's never your product. Your product is not the thing that people are buying. And I, I really appreciate that you brought this up earlier in terms of value your product is doing something for somebody that they value, right? And so talking about the features of it or how technical it is, isn't really what people need to take off. And so what Matern is doing, we have a product that launched in 2019 for pelvic pain. We could probably riff on this for a while. Women's pleasure is very confronting to a lot of people in society. So we actually steer clear of that in any of our messaging. So it's really about avoiding pain. Most people can get behind avoiding pain. And Millie is, is for that. So you can see Millie at millieforher.com. And then we have another product in the pipeline. This one that I think most people are more excited about because it's not as confronting and you're not working on women's sexuality. It's about trying to prevent pelvic floor injury during childbirth. Everybody's got a mom. Everybody can get behind protecting mom. So, and, it, and it's the first of its kind. It is interesting because having had a partner who's gone through natural childbirth and all that. There is so much about how to do that, but the recovery and dealing with that type of situation is very, very limited comparatively. 
I mean, there is stuff, but it is not. Well, it's funny because when I when I joined Materna, so I'm not the founder of Materna. Actually, I was I joined three years ago to take the products to market. But when I joined, I had people ask me, "Who are we to interfere with Mother Nature?" Right, and it's interesting that the standard of care in childbirth has been basically unchanged since the dawn of time. We've got the epidural that came out, what, in the 1940s? But after that, it falls off precipitously. You know, you've got forceps, vacuum, assist, and C-sections. And the C-section rate is a big problem in the United States, and postpartum hemorrhage is a big problem in the United States. So we got a lot of issues. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend the documentary Aftershock. It just came out about a month ago. on, But it also talks about the racial disparities in maternal mortality and morbidity in the United States. We have huge problems. And there's a lot of work to do. And so it's, it's fascinating to me that for so many years before I joined Materna, the refrain from investors was that women's health isn't a market. Like, how can you say that? We're, I think, the most dangerous place to give birth of all advanced economies. It's a crisis for health and human services. And yet for all these years, women's health companies have had a hard time getting funded. I think that's changing. I think Materna is one of a few companies that's demonstrating that the time is now. Obviously, there is this amazing opportunity and, you know, it is a very complex opportunity given the lack of attention in the space. But what drew you to then to come on to maternal compared to other opportunities you may have had? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's such a great story. They approached me. They found me on, on LinkedIn. They were looking for the next chapter and... I was not looking for a job and I definitely wasn't looking to join a startup. They're so hard. So, but every time I talk to another person at the company, I've talked to the recruiter first and then I talked to the, began talking to the board members. And every time I talked to another person, I got more interested. You know, childbirth is the number one reason for hospitalization worldwide. And yet there was nobody working in this space on this huge problem. So 90% of moms tear during childbirth, 90%. We have a 50% chance of getting incontinence or prolapse by the time we're 55. We're nine times more likely to have those symptoms if we've had a vaginal delivery. And yet no one is doing anything about it at all. I mean, I, I, I mean, just looking at it from the standpoint of being a business person and an engineer and an entrepreneur, I rarely see startups with a market this size with so little competition, right? I mean, your, your number one problem normally for a normal company is explaining how you're different from all the other solutions out there, right? That is not Materna's problem. <laughs> Materna's problem is explaining to everybody what the problem is. That there is an actual situation that can be dealt with versus, ah, it's just the way it is. Because, yeah. Right, right. And there's all these social headwinds. I mean, women's health touches on the social fabric in a way that nothing I've ever done does. You know, when I was working on artificial hips, you know, it's super interesting. And a lot of people have artificial hips or have a family member that does. But, you know, I didn't get people's birth stories, right? I didn't get people's most intimate. I've had more people crying talking to me working at Materna than in my entire career at healthcare combined. It's just a, they're incredibly upsetting issues that the patients don't talk about, families don't talk about. And I think we're changing that. Not just us. Femtech, sex tech, all of that is Changing. If you're not willing to talk about the problem, you can't change it, right? I'd be curious because I noticed how to look over Ambrose Street Ventures, you know, invested and they're UK based, you know, Dominique and the team over there. It felt a lot like much different approaches 
but still very, very clinical from a European to a US. And I don't have experience with the UK system, but do you see much, because we were talking earlier about the US, it's so far behind and falling. And a lot of that is race and income based in this country that these numbers, it's kind of like the old joke about Italy. If you had Northern Italy by itself, it would be, you know, one of the world's highest capital companies. Then you have the South where there's no infrastructure. The US wouldn't doing it in a way that's not a joke. You know, we are income and race based on a negative. How do you see this different with other countries? Oh my goodness. Well, I would say these are huge issues worldwide. They're very culturally based. So Materna, one of the decisions I made when I joined was to take it in a medical device direction, really double down on clinical evidence and FDA clearance to separate ourselves from all the companies that can't get funded because it's expensive to do that and it's hard. And a lot of women's health companies have ended up stuck in this space where you can't really make any claims. You can't, and, and if you can't make any claims, you can't talk about your value proposition. Think about sort of the way vitamins are marketed, right? There's not a lot of clinical evidence. The way that they can talk about themselves is very general, right? So you end up with these sort of be your best self, wellness kind of value propositions where the patient's like, what are you talking about, right? So in order to get FDA clearance, we needed to build a team and to get clinical evidence. And that's the path we're taking. That is such a, a monumental undertaking that we're sticking just with the U.S., we're going to do that here in the U.S. And the business plan in, in, in medical devices generally is to build a certain amount of value that's based on clinical evidence and FDA clearance, early revenues, good customer acquisition costs, and then a larger medical device company would acquire you and get it to scale. I think when we look at what we're seeing in France, France would be, in my opinion, probably the top in terms of the thoughtfulness with which the healthcare system approaches childbirth. Like all women get prenatal pelvic floor physical therapy, they get postnatal pelvic floor physical therapy, and it makes a big difference because about half of these injuries can be healed with local estrogen, time, physical therapy. But in the United States, none of that is reimbursed. The crazy thing is we'll reimburse the surgery and 15% of all women get pelvic floor surgery in the United States, 15%. We'll reimburse that, but we won't reimburse the, the PT or the estrogen, right? Or the time off or, you know, the, the help that women need. I was just talking to one of our clinicians last week and she was saying that we also think about these pelvic floor disorders as things that happen to old ladies and they're not. I mean, they, they are, but they're also things that can happen to young women. About a third of, of most of our Eurogyne practices are women in thirties. And there was a woman who was speaking with one of our clinicians last week and she was nine months postpartum and had been experiencing symptoms of incontinence and prolapse since she'd given birth and was absolutely in tears. And our clinician was saying, you can probably recover. They got a 50% chance of recovering if you can just free up your time to do some physical therapy, do estrogen, and um, just take care of yourself. And this new mom, she had a baby. And she was saying, listen, I don't think I have the time to take care of myself. It's always about the baby. I can't see myself really putting aside the time to take care of myself in this way. And I think that's a social headwind. I think we need to be talking about those things. I think public floor physical therapists are incredibly important people. And we don't have enough of them in the United States. They're not reimbursed in the United States. And I'll just maybe 
bookmark this to talk about as well, that never before in my career was the healthcare practitioner, the, the actual practice of delivery of healthcare, so in need of improvement around the devices that I'm working on. We're medical device manufacturers delivering these products to the world, but we are deeply engaged with all of our clinicians and trying to transform the way women are treated in the United States. It's, it's, there's a lot of work to do. Like I said, I've only seen more from like the burden thing and yet the lack of caring about our birth plans, the processes, yeah. Oh no, we'll, we'll tell you what to do. It's okay. You don't need to, you know, yeah, just, we have this for you. And going even further, it's, if that's kind of the attitude and something that is so straightforward and more like, um, Bothman actually is good here. Wait, wait to go to something here. I can't even imagine. Something like this requires, I jokingly say, there are levels of being an entrepreneur based upon what you're trying to do. How do you work on your capabilities as an entrepreneur to take on such a serious mission here? Because you have to be on point for the game. It's true. Yeah. Well, I have a lot to say about this. So I think that there's sort of a couple of different sides of this. One is I think you have to understand where you are in the evolution of your business and what it needs from you. So we just closed a $20 million Series B. I would say with this chapter now, my job changed. It has shifted now where I basically have two roles. I'm deepening the roots of the company, helping the team, helping build the team, recruit the team, set them up for success, clear away obstacles, set boundaries where everyone can be their best and be successful, and then expanding the reach of the company in an outward-facing way. So deepening and expanding. Before that, I would say that the main role I had was figuring out what the business plan was, right? Like what, what actually needs to happen here and how are we going to do that? And then telling the story in a way that we could attract the right people. That was the right leaders for the company, management team, and then also the right investors. I can't tell you how thrilled I am with the folks that are in our circle. You have great investors. I was going through, I was like, wow, nice. <laughs> it's incredible. But it, it was also very intentional. I mean, this is exactly what I set out to do. And nothing ever goes the way you think it will. And it hasn't gone the way I thought it would. It doesn't look the way I thought it would, but it, it feels the way I wanted it to. If you don't mind me just jumping back, you said it was very intentional. Now, this is given, you know, how you're talking about the idea of deepening and expanding, figuring out the model and then building the story. How do you keep yourself intentional in this process? Because there are quite a few moving pieces here, you know, in all this. And how do you keep that intentional? I am a, a, an avid meditator. Every morning, set my day. And it's crucial for me. But I think it's, it's more than that. It's self-care, right? Getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise, and setting the example of self-care also for my team. It's been many years now that I let go of the old story of exhaustion as a badge of honor, right? How often do you talk to somebody and say, how are you? And they're just like, oh my God, I'm so tired. Oh, God. And it's just telling you all their problems, right? And I respect that and I understand it is something I very consciously don't do. I don't want to be tired. <laughs> I don't like being tired. And if I am tired, I take care of myself. And I do that because I think who we are being in the moment 
has so much more impact on what is possible than what we're doing. Who we're being is more important than what we're doing. So if I show up exhausted and anxious to my meetings with my team, it is absolutely contagious, right? And as the CEO, they're watching me, right? Are we we all want to know all the time, are we okay? And so knowing that we're okay and being calm and centered is incredibly important for the CEO. And that doesn't mean I know the answers because mostly I don't. I hardly ever know the right answer. The team is the, I mean, my job is to hold the energy field where the team can show up and be creative. And they can't be creative if they're exhausted too, right? So we just closed this big round. We have two or three years of work to do now. So I spend my time making sure that they're take care of themselves. And if I'm sensing, and I watch carefully myself and other people, if I'm feeling grumpy or I'm being asked to do something that I know is going to make me grumpy, like travel too much. Or the other day, I was asked to be on a 6 a.m. teleconference. And it, I, it was with a clinician. It was important that I be there. But for me to be up and on screen by 6 a.m. is kind of disruptive to my whole family. And so I, I got on the Peloton. That's what I did. And I didn't, I didn't say a word about why I wasn't on screen. It was six o'clock in the morning. And so I was doing most of the talking. I was doing most of the listening. So I just, I said hello. And I just did a 45 minute workout while I listened to my team be awesome. And that's what I needed to do to have the rest of my day kind of work out for me. You know what I mean? Very much. I mean, and just as a quick aside, that explains everyone in the audience. There was a little bit of misscheduling and this wrongly was scheduled at 6 a.m. Pacific time for this call instead of 9 a.m. <laughs> so I can understand now why your team was so insistent. <laughs> your team was like, what's going on? What's your... <laughs> I was like, my mistake, sorry. Well, you know what? I think when we scheduled, you were in Europe and I was on the East Coast and I think both our computers didn't know what we were doing. And here we are now, both in it, both of us in different time zones. But it's, it's a, you know, you're bringing up a good point, which is also, I mean, we have a mostly remote team. Our technical team is located in the Bay Area, but everyone else, our clinical and commercial team is, is wherever they are because we all travel a lot. And what I notice is that the Pacific Coast folks end up getting asked to meetings at six in the morning and the East Coast folks get asked to meet during their dinner. And I don't like either one of those really. I'm just, it's on my mind as how can we make this easier? I'm always asking, how can we make this easier? It depends on the only good example really was the guy I know who was completely just a freak and put him, he and his team went into a bubble and they were on a single time zone around, even though they were all over the world. So they just, put themselves on a company time. And I was just like, okay, a what? <laughs> you know, but they did it for three months and yeah, they were all, yeah, it was a very young and very external responsible free, if that's the right term, team. So it was an interesting thing, but two things just to kind of get your and yeah, you know, the general concept of like what the entrepreneur, the CEO does is like you set the mission, you ensure that there is the means of fueling that mission, external sale, you know, whatever the sales, fundraising, whatever that fuel gathering is, but then facilitating the needs of the team to deliver on that value prop to the mission. 
And what's so interesting is I've heard so many CEOs talk about that. Oh, yes, I'm the dungeon. But bringing in, even though there's research after research that like calm team, a happy team, a you know, a team that actually is taking the time for themselves, especially in a space like this, provides a higher value than a grinded team, talent, et cetera. I, I like that this is, you know, to get that kind of facilitate the capabilities of your team, you're sort of modeling out and then supporting directly from the personal then up and kind of taking it there. That's something I'm always amazed when it's like, wait, research after research shows this, especially if you're doing value-added work, kind of want value-added people, you know, and Right. I mean, everyone on my team is what I would call a knowledge worker, right? They're completely unique and irreplaceable. I mean, I think there's two schools of thought that we're, we're, right, we're all replaceable or we're completely irreplaceable, right? And I guess it's both, right? But, but, but it, there's such unique people with such unique experience and we're working on something that's quite unique. So we want them to be creative and confident. The thing that I struggle with, and maybe you've got some advice for me, the thing that I struggle with, they're, they're, they're all perfectionist high achievers, and I am too. Right? Oh. So I try to check myself. Am I trying to make this perfect? Am I pushing harder than I need to? Does this need to get done today? Or am I just being crazy? And, you know, helping them also ask themselves those questions. I don't know, maybe, maybe they would say, I, I'll check with them when they listen to the podcast, they can let me know. Are we a grinding team or are we a creative, cared-for team? I don't know. It is a weird thing because I think so much of it is really more about how you and your team are defining your goals and what goes into it and then sort of the what is important. Because I know like one thing I've been working, you know, I've been sort of doing ever since I sold, you know, seven years ago, I've done a lot of interesting experiments content sites or direct, you know, things that are fun for me in crypto, whatever. So I could see if there was something else I wanted to do. And I haven't been that formal in defining what that is. Now in the past, when I look back and re-engineer those times where I've had the most success, it has been that, that silly repetitive, what am I trying to do? Or, you know, looking at this endless list that seems to only get longer, the more you look at it. And evaluating it against, you know, that core mission and consistently. And it's dope. And it feels, and I say this all the time, it feels dopey in the moment, but I do know consistent, repetitive effort against that type of effort. And there's 20 billion ways of defining a KPI and OKR, you know, goal setting, a mission, you know, reviewing, da, 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 da. But repetitive, consistent with, learning of that process, an effort to say why and why not create more value. I've gone from, you know, I have, you said you were a chemical engineer. I have a chemistry degree and then right into becoming an accountant and auditor to then being a programmer, all because it was just logic. And until most to my late twenties, everything I did was about logic. And then somehow 30 years on was about the stories that logic-ish stuff can create. To now, I really like the times where I can just focus on telling a story 
And it's like, oh, wait, what happened to that guy? He just was like, oh, wait. So that makes perfect sense to me. I, well, I agree. And I, I think as I'm, as I've gone on in my career, I've had a similar situation in that human beings need the story. Right. And, you know, it's the ultimate switcheroo of leadership. You know, you think, you know, in, your, in our junior years, we think, oh, as soon as I get in charge, I'll make this all better. And then you realize, well, first of all, better is hard to figure out sometimes. But then also you can't make anybody do anything. Not for very long. <laughs> and certainly nothing complicated. Right. So it's all about that, creating that through line. It is all about the story and the energy of like, where are we going? Why does this matter? Well, no, I mean, defining it since you have, you know, that definition of why and then kind of finding the way to live it. Do you consistently reevaluate it or not reevaluate the why per se, but maybe how you're articulating the why? We have spent a lot of time on that as a company, the, the purpose of our company. We've got two purposes. One is to get these products to the patients that need them because no one else is working on it. And the other purpose is to demonstrate to the market that when we invest in women, we all win. Because investors are pattern seekers, right? They want to know who else made a lot of money doing the kind of stuff that you're doing. And in women's health, there was a pretty short list of people. And it's getting better and getting better. And so for sure, we want Maternity to be one of those stories that someone else, you know, whenever you're raising money, you've got your exit comp slide, right? Like, here's all the other exits in our space and why this is a good, you know, who's made money on this? You know, we want to be on other people's exit cop slides, make it easier for the next group. Well, okay. That then as an entrepreneur, as someone who's, you know, kind of coming in and taking the story and taking it to the next level, you know, obviously it seems there is a very deliberate corporate success structure you're going after to have this exit, you know, the delivery product, the execution of the business model, that's very straightforward and, you know, really interestingly done, at least from what I've been able to see. But this mission, how do you make sure that you're defining what is success for you and then this very, very cool mission for the success of the company? Because I'm not the founder, I have a slightly different version of it than I think founders do. Founders have that, I gave birth to this kind of experience, right? Whereas I feel like I've been in discovery since I joined Materna. I'm still learning all the time. I can't believe some of the things I'm learning. <laughs> it's been fascinating. And so then I also am surprised at how often people want to hear my personal story. I think that might be because there are so few female CEOs. I think there's we're like 2% or something like that. So people often do kind of ask me some version of how did you do this? I, maybe the, maybe they ask all CEOs. I don't know. But I find that people want to know what my deal is personally. And, and that seems to be important to the story. Like, why am I doing this? And so for me, part of my diligence when I was looking at joining Materna, I actually keyed back into what's been going on in feminism because Gosh, I mean, I, I was totally raised by a feminist mom. And feminism was a thing back in the 70s and 80s. And then it kind of became, it went out of vogue for sure. I remember being in college and asking, and people asking me, are you a feminist? And me saying, no, 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 I'm everybodyist, right? I'm an equalist. 
feminism became an F word for, for a couple of decades. And I, I you know, as, a, as an engineer and finance person, I spent those 20 years really being the only woman in the room for the most part, especially as, as I got more and more senior. Surrounded by lovely men. I had, I've had a wonderful career and I love men. And I didn't realize how much energy was going to role switching until I didn't have to do it anymore. So now at Materna, I have a lot of female investors and I have a lot of female executives on my team. And I am surrounded by women clinicians and female patients. So I went from being the only woman in the room and never thinking about it or talking about it to kind of talking about it all the time and thinking about it all the time and having the liberty to be able to do that. And what I find is that that is very, very inspiring for a lot of people, a lot of women in particular who are still in, still in the situation of having to do the role switching and not talk about anything that women talk. I'll give you an example. You know, the way a room full of men often connects when you sit down at the board table is to talk about sports and whatever happened in the sports world, right? And some women like sports like that, but it's less of a thing that women do, right? And so, you know, for all those years, I tried to make sure I was watching some sports headlines so that I could connect when we all had to sit down to connect, right? I don't actually like sports that much, though. <laughs> it's exhausting. And it's also, it's what part of the thing we've been trying to do with the podcast and my team. At first, so much of our effort was like, okay, hey, we have all these inbound, these booking agents, whatever, dying d we did a calculation at one point. It was like 96, 97% of all inbound you know, pitching was male entrepreneurs and very, very similar type stories. Yeah. For some reasons, if you got to spend the money for the type of thing, there's usually some sort of external ongoing sale. And then to an audience like this, to really hear about entrepreneurism because there's no one way to do, you know, we were joking at the beginning, like, what is entrepreneurism? And it's sort of like, don't really know what it is, but I know when I see it, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like. There's a million books in the airport trying to describe it, right? And it's all what you can make it. And therefore that makes it all the more important to hear different things, because I think everyone has a unique journey, but there are so many similarities in that journey that we as entrepreneurs can learn. I know for me, I always learn. I try and I'll read 5,000 things and formal books. And, you know, I have boxes of books that need to jump back from my moves that, you know, I think really are there. So they're like, oh yes, I got something on that subject. I know I need to work more on. But when I hear you just talk about, you know, working and creating the foundation with your team, all of a sudden something's fired in my head about, oh, what we're doing on our team and how we're going for it. And like, oh, you know what? Let's work a little bit on this. Okay. That would be cool. I feel hearing other entrepreneurs or other people dealing with situations, it can be in anything in life. It just helps at least me kind of put things in a different perspective and then allow me to, you know, steal it. Well, yeah, that's kind of cool. Let me take that and reposition that and go there. So I think this is important to have these stories and have the ability. Use the term, and I've heard it so many times, and it's kind of sad because, you know, I'm not wasp, but I pretty much am all but wasp. You know, six foot four, the whole, like, I kind of walk in and I get that, like, thank you for coming, sir. And I'm like, 
Yes, I have a very small violin to complain about. So, you know, seeing how people have to change their behavior to do it, it just adds a degree of complexity. And we're already talking about something and familiarism that is complex and so fraught with failure already to add these additional layers of failure to it's like, wait, you want me to do another that's gonna reduce my effectiveness by X percent now or again instead of let's just create. What do you need to be in the best position to create value? So yeah. It's so good. I've got another one for you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Cause one of the things I've seen in business planning and, and execution is that because you mentioned KPIs earlier. I have found that as soon as we have a goal, clear goal, quantitative, you know, smart goal, quantitative, measurable, the team and I can get very contracted. Energetically, everyone gets like very attached. Oh no, we have to have that done by blah, blah, blah. Or like there's this feeling of urgency. We want that. We want that, right? But we don't, well, we don't want everyone in a constant state of fight or flight, right? So how to create spaciousness and creativity to get a goal done with like holding the line, but avoiding, do you know what I mean? Debbie, do you, do you recognize that feeling of contraction? If you don't mind, I'm going to just pull up my phone because last week I had founder of this not-for-profit called Rabble Mill. They're Nebraska-based. They were creating skate parks. The guy, ex-professional skater, you know, the whole cool dude beyond cool dude. And the progression point was to create for these sort of kids who are kind of falling through the cracks, going from creating a safe environment to creating a school. And they had just opened their first just last week. And he was talking about they had tried for so long grants and da, 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 da. he was calling them moments of radical, was it empathy? So basically they have KPIs from, they have to, from the grants and stuff. They had kind of taken it that the whole point of this was to create these opportunities where the students could excel. So like their focus was on creating as many moments of radical something. And he used the example of like student walking in like, oh, I just got off the phone with my dad. And everyone was like, yeah, they were having a staff meeting, oh, but that's good. I've never met my dad before. This is the first time I ever did it. And like immediately a guy, one of the staff members was like, dude, same thing happened to me and walks out and they, you know, talk about it. And they were all like, what? And it was like, yeah, gets happy. He's good. Yeah. Da, da. Like that tells the story a gazillion times better than it just retelling is. He said, look, he talks like we have to do these things for keeping available, but we have these moments that we focus on generating that allow us to create something bigger. Yeah, I love that. What we're talking about in terms of hearing each other's stories and, and getting ideas, take the tidbits. I mean, I surround myself with folks that do what I do in different ways. And it's so important. I mean, I, and I've had a lot of people ask me, like, isn't being a CEO the loneliest job? I am never lonely. <laughs> never, ever, ever. But I intentionally create a huge community of people that also are CEOs and I could talk to. Call and say, you know, you just reach out and say, hey, how did you do? I got this thing happening. How did you do that? And just see what they say. I mean, 
And I create time to do that for other people because you can't. But the funny thing is, I'm curious what you think, but I have not found it to be very quid pro quo that the person that helps me is someone I can help. It doesn't seem like it goes very much like that. It's more like we all, you just have to pay it forward, you know? It's the typical research done on value of a network is actually not your direct connections. It's your direct connections, connections. And I think that, you know, it is that kind of value. I know the people who've helped me most generally are not, you don't need me to figure out a conversion rate optimization. You don't need me to actually figure out how to find the best marketer or, you know, get a better you know, media buy structure. Okay. So whatever, but thank you. <laughs> Let me buy you a drink. Yeah, I agree. It's funny. I hadn't thought of it, but I do think it is that related to, it is your ability to provide value within a network, even if it's not one-to-one, because it's like, I know there are people, and you know, who like, I think sometimes like, this is one guy who's just a typical genius kid, you know, when he was like 12, dropping out of a Nordic engineering school, you know, because he was like, yeah, this is too easy. One of the early developers over at Zynga and all this stuff. And I think sometimes it's just that I have just enough technical things and then a willingness to go deep into the logic and listen to him. And I'm like, okay, I can't add any value to this, what you're trying to figure out other than, huh, okay, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, you know, I could attempt to listen to him. But he turns around and breaks down 20,000 other things for me. So it's like, all right, I'm just going to keep, anytime you want to talk over my head, I will be there. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, it's just a big merry-go-round. It's a good time. What's the best way for the audience? You know, if they're interested in learning more, but reaching out to you, what's the best way? Yeah, so we have, I mean, maternamedical.com is going to be the mothership where you can go and you can learn about why we do what we do and who our investors are. You can also, you can learn a little bit about me. I'm easy to find online <laughs> and LinkedIn and all the things. And then there are links to our two product sites. So the first is similiforher.com where you can learn about our FDA cleared product and then the Ease trial, which is a clinical trial. It's also on clinicaltrials.gov where you can learn about the clinical research we're doing to see if we can reduce pelvic floor injury during childbirth. Very cool. We'll make sure we put all this into the show notes. And really, it is it is an interesting, you know, just from the concept of how you're positioning this and working on this is a really interesting problem. So it's so much to learn about how you're doing, but even more so, so much hope for your success. So thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Really fun. Thank you so much. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.